Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. Blake Radio. Original, but it's the classic lie. 
classic lie is something for nothing. That is at the bottom of most swindles. I'm going to give you a little further, uh, a little bit more background. So my father told me this when I was about six years old, and he repeated it often, that in order to be swindled, you must first lie to yourself and be a willing party to a deception, often to defraud even another person. And my father usually gave us a bit of advice after an especially successful con. And I took this message to heart because my father was a successful con man. And he conned large corporations out of substantial sums of money, at least back in the 70s. So I figured he should definitely know. And this really shook me up because as a kid, I decided right then and there that it was not worth trying to get away with anything or be dishonest or con anyone because I didn't want to be conned. So I set about determining what was true and only speaking the truth and only being honest. So my reasoning that as a small kid, I had no defense against adults who would try to con me. But I could control my honesty. And so that was my goal. Somebody in the chat room mentioned that there was noise, like a t-shirt in the background. So I'm thinking it might be the AC, so I just turned it off. Major sacrifice here in Panama, but I'm going to do it. So this is the same with the medical industrial complex. It's one big, B-I-G, all caps, double bold, big con. And so the only defense for the individual is to be honest and not be a mark. And, and so you can only be conned by the medical industrial complex if you're first dishonest. A first is being dishonest to yourself. So you have to tell yourself a lie. You want to believe it. And then the con begins. And as many of you know, I often write jokes. And this week's show is based on a song that I remembered from my youth. Unfortunately, I could not divine the song. So I decided to write a song for the occasion and ended up writing two songs. So here they are. First one is Tell Me Lies. That's the title. And uh, this is how it goes. Tell me that you will heal me just so I can hear it. Say that you care for me. Make me believe it. Prescribe the standard of care for me. Say it will never kill me. Say that I'm your special patient, the only one you want. Say you won't hurt me, and I'm the special one. Say you'll never, ever hurt me, and you will sooner quit your license. Promise me you'll never make deals with the insurance company behind my back, and you will always be 100% honest with me. Say you're different from the rest. Tell me lies, tell me lies, make it all sound good. Make me believe that fairy tales can happen in the protocol. And when I get my side effects, when complications beset me, show me that you're different from them all. Show me that you care. Say you don't want to harm me, you just can't afford it. Say you'll even refuse to follow deadly protocols for me because you feel I deserve it. Tell me you'll never treat me like a doctor's in my past. Say that you can guarantee 
the benefit will last. Say how I'm the only patient you would sacrifice your license for. Say how you've never had these feelings for another patient before. Then tell me how much I'm different. There's no one like me out here. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me lies, tell me lies, make it all sound good. Make me believe that fairy tales can happen in the exam room. And when I get my health involved, decide to let my guys down, show me that you're different from them all. Show me that I can trust you to lay your license down. Show me that I can trust you. That's the first song. And uh, as you can see, this uh, song is laced with a lot of assumptions. Uh, actually lies that people tell themselves. And so when the doctor repeats these lies, or the medical industrial complex repeats these lies, uh, people are inclined to believe them. So let's do song number two. Uh, the first song is my husband's favorite song, but the second song is my favorite song. But I just happened to be on a roll, so I wrote two of them. Tell me one more lie, my doctor. Tell me one more lie, my doctor. Of course. Your insurance company is working out for you. These protocols are designed to heal you. Soon you will feel good as me. This extra round of chemo is like a safety net. The ambulance will rescue you. The technology will help you yet. The health system cares. Yeah, I think you know. Research is finding cures. Soon you will have the answers. There's a pill for every ill that you are feeling in your bones. Don't even doubt the promise. No utter disbelief. So, tell me one more line, my doctor. Whisper softly so nobody hears. Keep me hanging on for another year of surgeries. Oh, tell me one more line, my doctor. And the doctor says, your insurance will cover this. There is no need to worry. With only hope to keep alive and only time to kill, there is a fool that fleeced you, and he's fleecing you still. And the patient says, so tell me one more line, my doctor. Whisper softly so nobody hears. Keep me hanging on for another year. Oh, tell me one more line, my doctor. Whisper all the things you know I long to hear. Oh, tell me one more lie, dear doctor. So that's the second story, the second song. <laughs> so let's talk about some obvious lies. The first lie is health insurance. That is the first lie, and that is a huge, 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 huge lie. First, we're going to talk about how people will perceive this lie, and then we're going to talk about the concept of insurance and how medical care, as we know it, fits none of the criteria for an actual insurable event. So, first lie, health insurance. Medical care that I would not even pay for if I had money, will be magically paid for by people I have never met, just if I buy health insurance. Now, the dishonesty here is multi-level. It is dishonest to commit someone else to pay for something you would not pay for yourself if you had the money. It's also dishonest to ask an insurance company to forcefully take money from someone else to give to you. This alone would be reason for anyone to not participate in the Affordable Care Act because the whole thing is forcefully taking money from people. Many of them have a far more important way to spend it. Uh, so each person who buys health insurance believes 
he will get more money out than he puts in. Otherwise, why buy it? So obviously, everyone who puts money in cannot get out more than they put in. So each person's dishonesty blinds them to the fact that the premise of health insurance is false. This desire to take advantage of others makes it possible for the insurance company to swindle everyone. So what is it about insurance that is uh, especially sinister and uninsurable? Well, the first thing is for something to be insurable, the loss must be due to chance. Regular recurring losses such as shoplifting and supermarket are built into the price and would not be insurable as it's not a uh, case of bad luck, so to speak. And so in healthcare, uh, consumption of healthcare is not chance. Uh, it's actually compulsory. You know, people go to the hospital with babies, uh, shots are not optional, you have to have them. Um, mammograms are scheduled, you know, protocols are written. So it's not chance. And this alone makes it not insurable. So the expenditure of healthcare dollars is not due to chance. The next thing is the loss of the expenditure must be definite and measurable. This means it must be built to establish proof of loss, not just casual references, but also it means that the loss must be something that can be itemized. Many people will go into a hospital expecting that what they're going to experience will cost $2,000 and leave the hospital with a bill of $20,000 or even more. And so the loss is not definite and it cannot be uh, anticipated, quantified, or limited. For example, if a $100,000 house burns to the ground, the replacement value is $100,000. This is not the case with medical care. One cannot itemize the magnitude of what is being insured. Next, the loss must be predictable, meaning it must be of such a nature that its frequency and average severity can be readily determined to establish the required premium. Not true of medical care. Back in 1983, I was sitting in my chair in business school, and it was the insurance course. And the instructor indicated that the frequency of gallbladder removal varied greatly throughout the United States. The correlation was with income and insurance. The more income a person had, the more insurance they had, the less likely they were to have a gallbladder. Now, this is where the professor cried. He said, we must control an employee that is not on our payroll. The physician. So, it becomes then the cat and mouse game. The doctor is considered by the insurance company or industry to be an employee. An employee that must be guided, disciplined, penalized, and controlled. So, what's really going on in medical care then is there's not a predictable, random, a, a random but predictable uh, occurrence happening here at all. It is totally under control of individual human beings. Now, the loss also cannot be catastrophic. What's the definition of catastrophic? Catastrophic loss is 
a loss that is devastating but affects groups of people at the same time. And so the loss is catastrophic, like an earthquake or a tsunami, it cannot be insured because the magnitude of the loss is so great and affects everyone at the same time. So you don't have the ability to finance one loss through the payment of all these other premiums because every single individual is experiencing a loss. So what's this got to do with medical care? So causing the event or the need for health care or the payout to happen in a cluster all at once, as in mammogram screening, this violates the law of insurability. This makes breast cancer catastrophic. So if you take a group of women and say, take a city, divide it into quarters, you do a mammogram screening in one quarter, the ladies in that quarter are going to experience a tremendous increase in the diagnosis of breast cancer, thus making this illness, breast cancer, catastrophic. So it's affecting this whole group of women due to an external force like a hurricane or a planned mammogram screening, planned, of course, by the hospital. So this law of insurability is violated, violated by the hospital's actions in various screening programs. So it causes specifically the event of experiencing a large um, expensive illness to no longer be random until no longer strike individually here and there. Next, the loss exposures must be large. This means to avoid adverse selection must be enough exposure to losses to the frequency to be predictable and to be grouped for the purpose of establishing rates. Put in English, um, we have to ensure something that's a large expense, doesn't occur often, and it's random. So this is absolutely not true with health expenses. So most medical expenses are not large. You're looking at uh, anywhere from $50 to $200 or $300. And, and they're frequent. So you're talking about an annual exam. You're talking about a, a visit for a blood pressure check, a visit for a diabetes check, arthritis checkup, resource medications, a cold. So these are um, events that are frequent and they're actually not that large. So the loss exposures must be randomly selected. So concentrations of risk by area, geography, age groups, occupations, economic status can lead to adverse selection. So you need to avoid concentration of risk. Uh, again, this is not the case. So hospitals gain the system by having screening programs that label healthy people as ill and artificially create losses for the insurance company. An example of this is cardiac screening in asymptomatic elderly people in an elder recreational center. Uh, the act of screening creates healthcare consumption as abnormalities irrelevant to the health or function of the individual are identified and the person is scheduled for heart surgery. This was a common occurrence in Syracuse where I practice. One of my patients was a patient care coordinator at the premier heart surgery center in town. One day she came to the office for an uh, ordinary complaint and said, oh, 
This is so stressful. Yesterday was Deaf People's Heart Surgery Day. They did a bunch of cases of case finding at the Deaf Center and scheduled all these deaf people for open heart surgery. And of course, her stress was that they were all arguing and finding back and forth and it created stress for her. But the point was, these people basically were all targeted for heart surgery because they were physically in the same location and happened to be deaf. And then another um, week, they'll target another um, center with different uh, demographics. And so this type of behavior um, in healthcare, where the magnitude of the expenditure and the frequency of the expenditure is actually within human control, makes, again, makes this not insurable. So these are all the criteria of insurability. You can Google them and uh, they come up. And healthcare needs none of them. Therefore, uh, insuring healthcare is is totally dishonest and it's, it's inappropriate. So it's not insurance, it's actually more like extortion. But because people have lied to themselves, uh, that allows the bigger lie to happen. So each person's dishonesty binds them to the fact, blinds them, and they can't see that the promise of health insurance is false. So the desire to take advantage of others makes it possible for the insurance company to swindle everyone. So the doctor suggests a therapy that has no chance of succeeding. The person agrees. After all, the insurance is paying for it. So the first swindle, having insurance, makes the second swindle, the providing of care that's of no use, possible. So the person focuses on what a great deal they're getting because their neighbor is paying for their care. The person is distracted from simply weighing the benefit of the care, the harm it may cause, and what else he could be doing with his time or with the monthly premium money that's already being spent. So instead, the person proceeds with the thought that now is his chance to make his neighbor pay, to continue the robbery he planned when he purchased the insurance in the first place. So the, the person in the um, chat room has in this conception that maybe you guys listening have as well, that the heart patients were deaf and blind because they didn't see the scam. No, they were deaf because they were deaf. And because they were deaf, they physically located at a deaf center. And because of that, the hospital was able to go to the deaf center and screen all of them with the permission of the people who ran the center for the deaf. Um, the blindness I'm referring to is a figurative term where um, people who buy insurance don't think through the logical consequences of the system. And if you say, I'm buying health insurance because I'm going to get more money out than I'm putting in, and you ask yourself, wait, if everyone believes this, this has got to be false for at least one of us. And it's most likely going to be false, when you think about it, for everyone. So the death is literal, the blindness is a figure of speech. Okay, so the even, even bigger wealth transfer, which I witnessed in my office, is if a person is poor. So we think that um, a person that's poor definitely needs health insurance. But what happens is this poor person is 
barely able to pay the monthly premium, and they do not have the ability to afford the deductible. And so then the wealthier worker or business owner uh, who can afford the deductibles and co-pays is the one who actually uses the insurance and ends up spending his premium money plus the premium money contributed by the less affluent worker. This means that everyone pays premiums and only the wealthier individuals can use the actual policy. So then, of course, the final con is that the care the wealthier person receives is more damaging than receiving no care. Thus, the affluent person does not end up getting the better health after all. And so everyone pretty much gets uh, scammed. You're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Rainbow Soul channel at wakeradio.com on so please visit vitalitycapsules.com forward slash Candia and get your free report on curing, well, handling Candia and the many uses of turpentine. As always, we welcome your calls and questions. Please call in at 914-338-0695 and we'll be taking questions in about 15 minutes. So there are, of course, more examples of the why that people tell themselves. The first why is that if they receive medical care, they will recover quicker with medical intervention. With most injuries, especially trauma, this is not true. The reason this is not true is because in the process of evaluating or diagnosing the trauma, the body part, is called the broken arm, is disrupted. It's moved, it's twisted, it's put in certain positions to get a better x-ray. And this results in actually disrupting the healing process. And then you have the actual surgical intervention itself. If we put um, screws and needles into the bones to hold them together, the bones are actually weakened at the site where the screws are placed. And this intervention increases the chances of infection and other complications. One obvious example of recovery being delayed by medical intervention is childbirth. If a woman has a baby at home, she's generally up and at them in two days. If a woman has a vaginal hospital birth, she can usually get back to uh, herself in eight weeks. And if someone has a C-section in the hospital, uh, it can take for a month to recover her strength. So the first one, one large people tell themselves is recovery is quicker. It surely is not. That's why is that there are better outcomes with medical intervention. Um, the complication rates combined with intervention that is not effective makes this not possible. So in other words, if interventions are 100% effective, then the complication rate would be less than the benefit rate, the effectiveness rate. But with most medications, the effectiveness is so low and the complication rate is so high that the outcome is usually, if not always, worse with medical intervention. An excellent example of this is the female Viagra, which we talked about last week. And um, the latest studies are that it's 8% effective. And it has a 28% side effect rate. So you can see here that the side effect or harm rate is more than three times the effectiveness rate. Now, most drugs have this type of profile. For example, cholesterol drugs have a 30% side effect or harm rate in the first year of use, actually each year of use, and a 0.08% 
benefit rate for those who take it. And so with a harm rate that is more than 100 times that of the benefit rate, it's clear that treatment slash intervention is more harmful. So let's give a worse overall outcome in terms of quality of life. Next thing is medical intervention increases life expectancy. So if a person interacts with the medical industrial complex and consumes what the medical industrial complex provides, they will live a longer, healthier life. This is not true. This is absolutely not true. Um, in medical school, I'll never forget, I was so excited because I was learning all this great stuff, you know, on how to um, how to help people and, and how to understand diseases and, and treat things. And so I said, I just one day just blurted out, wow, we will help people live longer. And the instructor quickly corrected me, no, no, life expectancy is genetic. Doctors cannot extend it. Each person is programmed with so many heartbeats and so many breaths. We do not know how many, and we cannot extend it. We can only help a person experience his pre-programmed allotment. Well, wait, this was confusing. Either the person has a pre-programmed allotment, and they're going to win out that number of heartbeats no matter what, or, and they cannot influence it, or we can influence it. And so basically the professor gave this kind of double-sided answer, but he was very firm. No, we do not increase life expectancy. Medicine has not progressed that far. We don't understand what makes people live longer, and therefore we do not have the ability to extend life, uh, a person's life. And I said, wow. Huh. And so... Of course, at the time I said, okay, I didn't want to appear stupid or waste the valuable time needed to teach the complex concepts that were crammed in four years of medical school. But it's very clear that um, people who go to who seek medical care for the purpose of extending their lives are lying to themselves. They're absolutely lying to themselves. And the doctors know this. They know this. Why? Because they went to medical school like I went to medical school, and they were told in medical school that we doctors cannot guarantee anyone a long and healthy life. But that's not what we do. We treat illnesses and afflictions appropriately. Now, has anyone ever wondered why the FDA does not allow natural products to say that they diagnose, cure, treat, or prevent any disease? It's because drugs do not accurately diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And so any comments about these areas, even where there is clear research in support of it, is not allowed because it would give natural substances a clear advantage. So, of course, that's why people tell themselves that, that drugs can accurately diagnose, treat, cure, and prevent diseases. And unfortunately, uh, the evidence of that is, is lacking. And I was going to say, a lot of uh, people are given drugs, say, for high blood pressure to prevent heart attacks. And the studies show heart attacks are prevented. Well, the other thing that they show is that overall, 
all-cause mortality, death from all causes, is not informed, which means if people don't live a minute longer, they just die of something else besides a heart attack. And, again, of course, you can leave that to your imagination, whether it's drug side effects or who knows whether the elephant got them or whatever. But so all these um, things that we're doing to these medical interventions do not appear to improve life expectancy. Of course, we've covered many times the Hispanic paradox. Hispanic paradox. Those of you who are Hispanic, and many of you who are not Hispanic, you know that being Hispanic is not a homogeneous thing. There are even different dialects of Spanish, and they have different lifestyles and everything from all over the world. People uh, are called Hispanic because they happen to speak Spanish. But these people, when they come to the United States, their life expectancy absolutely soars. And one thing they do not get is they do not get medical care uh, for many reasons. Uh, one big reason is uh, the language barrier. And this, by the way, this longevity is experienced by first-generation Hispanics who were not born in the United States. So Hispanics who are born in the United States, in other words, they have a command of English, uh, do not experience this longevity. And they, those Hispanics, the ones who are born in the state, tend to get more medical care. They tend to do as they're told and follow this medical paradox. So we've got a really preponderance of evidence that uh, interacting with the medical industrial complex does not produce increased life expectancy. Now, there are more lies, of course. Another lie that people uh, tell themselves is that they are not intelligent enough to make complex decisions and that the experts, say the doctors, or sometimes they'll trust the insurance company's policies or they'll trust the hospital's quality assurance committee, um, should be trusted in this regard. And this is absolutely nonsense. There's no evidence at all to support this one. But... Many people, and actually it's just a common um, human inclination, is to feel that someone is looking out to you, for you, feeling that somebody is looking over you and, 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 looking, and, and making sure everything's okay. And so people lie themselves when they place that trust in the doctor, the hospital, the insurance company, the FDA, or uh, a pharmacy company. And there's reasons why this can't possibly be true. For example, a doctor, you know he might spend four years in medical school, spends no more than three hours in medical school on any particular ailment. You, the patient, can easily exceed that on your own. Further, the doctor is limited by requirements to make a decision that is possible for the insurance company, the drug company, the hospital, and themselves. That decision is not likely to result in benefit to you, the patient. So going to a doctor to see if you're healthy is like a chicken going to a fox to see if he's tasty. So, <laughs> a lot of activity in the uh, chat room here. Uh, I'll give you an example, just a recent example. Uh, a friend of mine uh, purchased health insurance and, and uh, has had health insurance 
you know, over the years. And it's self-employed. The person had a mole in the back and went to the doctor and was relieved to know that all this was covered by insurance. And the diagnosis was made that this was cancer, melanoma. A surgery was done, and the person got a bill for $8,000. And the doctor said, oh, don't worry, you know, you've met your deductibles, your co-pays, your everything. And from here on out, everything is covered 100% by surgery and by uh, insurance. So she was like, she felt this is great, wonderful. And the doctor recommended, of course, a second surgery to get it all to make sure. And of course, she described it for the grueling recovery period. And she said, okay, okay, I'm ready for this. I, I want this cancer gone. And uh, he talked to me on meeting. She said, well, at least insurance, insurance is paying for it. Well, two days before the scheduled surgery, she gets a call from the doctor's office saying that they looked over the slides again and the surgery is not necessary, it's not needed. So what happened? What happened? Well, what happened was when she was paying out of pocket, it was like everything goes. And when the insurance company was paying, the insurance company said, whoa, wait a minute. We will pay you. The EBS said we will not pay you because we don't like what the medical record says. We don't feel the medical record has enough information in it for us to pay for this, number one. And number two, the insurance company said we will pay you, but we're going to pay you 10 cents on the dollar. And so all this went on. Behind her back, so to speak, between her doctor slash hospital and the insurance company. And so this person, like most people who engage in the medical industrial complex, thought her doctor was practicing medicine, thought the hospitals were providing medical care, when really they were practicing insurance. And she just happened to be the vehicle. Um, so the first lie, of course, is that insurance will protect anyone from medical expenses. This is not true. In fact, uh, medical bankruptcies are higher in states where the level of insurance is higher, which means that people in these states are, are more inclined to get medical care thinking it's covered by the insurance and ends up not being covered by the insurance. So, in this case, I think it's worth looking a little deeper. And so, I want to ask you the audience, why was the second surgery canceled? Perhaps the hospital knew that surgery was 100% covered, so they would need to check in advance to be sure the insurance company would pay. Of course, the insurance company either said no, as I said, or offered an amount that was not satisfactory to the hospital and the doctor. But this is common. It's a common it is a common uh, thing to especially for the hospital, to literally scan a person's insurance card and they have a software program that interacts with the insurance company's program and it prints out a list of every single test and maneuver and procedure that that insurance company will rate as being authorized for a visit with that diagnosis. And so this person lied to herself again. So instead of saying, wait, wait, how is it that surgery was necessary yesterday and not today? If it was an honest mistake, was the first surgery also an honest mistake? Was the first surgery even necessary? But this individual was so anxious to use, exploit the insurance, 
but she didn't question the necessity of the first surgery. So this is an example of lying to yourself first. And this is not a trivial matter. This is something um, they think each one of us needs to guard against. Uh, back in office hours last month, someone said, wow, what if you have a real emergency? Whoa, back up, back up. First of all, if you have time to get to the emergency room and wait your turn at the emergency room, then what you have can't possibly be an emergency. So if what you have is a true emergency, if it needs to be attended to um, within minutes or hours, then you absolutely cannot depend on the medical industrial complex to meet your needs. An example of this, that was, uh, you know, practicing medicine, I've told the story before, and a um, patient called up and said, yeah, I don't feel well, and yeah, I got chest pain. So he called me that night, and I said, well, you know, go to the emergency room and uh, see, yeah, get checked out. So I went to the emergency room, they sent him home with some uh, indigestion pills. And that morning, about 8.30, 9 o'clock, he called him and said, yeah, really just don't feel well. I said, no, come on down to the office, we'll check it out. So he comes to the office and uh, passes out right there in the office. And because he's in a doctor's office who's paying attention, you know, the receptionist ordered me that this person to pass out class and, and examine with another patient, came out, revived him right there on the spot, resuscitated him, and uh, he lived, to my knowledge, another 15 years. When he went to the hospital, they told him that had he had his cardiac arrest in the hospital, in the emergency room, he would have died. They would not have given him prompt attention. So if you really do have an emergency, then you need to really educate yourself, learn how to handle those things uh, at home. So I'm going to do station identification, and then we'll take some questions. So you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Rainbow Soul channel at blakeradio.com. As always, please visit vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida and get your free report on eradicating candida and the many uses of turpentine. Okay. <laughs> okay, so lots of discussion here. So if people are listening, you can um, click, I think, the number one on your phone if you have a question. Okay, so one person said, I wonder if people pray to their doctor. I don't know, but I know a lot of people who pray for their doctor. They pray that God will guide their doctor and help their doctor heal them. So a lot of people do pray for their doctor. There's a lot of difficulty sorting out the truth and facts of what is wrong with our body and how to heal on our own. Yes, there is a lot of difficulty sorting out the truth and facts. What I recommend people do is start with something that they believe, whatever, however small, and then proceed logically from there and reject everything that contradicts that one belief. And then usually it's like the thread in a fabric. If you follow the thread, it then leads you uh, along the straight grain. And then if you find things that are contradicting what you thought you believe, definitely be willing to go back and reconsider it.
They probably eat better food if they have immigrant habits. No, they don't. No, they do not. I've gone to many uh, Hispanic groceries in um, Syracuse City that I uh, live in, and uh, a lot of chemicals on the shelves, a lot of preservatives, a lot of canned foods, a lot of pasta, um, you know, lots of bread. So that's not what it is. The big difference is that they do not have access to medical care. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it must be a real mind-bending experience going to medical school. Yes, it is definitely a mind-bending experience going to medical school. And uh, sitting in the uh, classes as they were spouting out these information filled with contradictions, numerators with no denominators. And so we have a numerator with no denominator. You know, you can't tell how big the problem is. You can't tell if it's a one in a million problem, if it's a one in 10,000 problem, a one in 10 problem. You know, you just, they just throw out all this stuff. Well, six people were affected. Well, things have doubled. And, and you don't know, because two times zero is still zero, right? So I think one time I tried to sit down and sift through a pile of numbers about um, cervical cancer screening and pap smears. And it just came up to, uh, the numbers are so small, it's like zero, 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 zero. And I'm like, well, why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we screening for something uh, that less than one in 100,000 chance of appearing. And so, uh, of course, I got the uh, glittering generality, which was, if we can save just one life in a 20-year medical career, it will have been worth it. It's kind of like a teacher who teaches students every single day, uh, and if she can have a positive impact on the life of only one kid in a 20-year or 40-year career, she's happy. I'm like, man, I would like to have a better batting average than that. That's pretty dismal. That's depressing. So um, the other thing that was mentioned in medical school as an apology was that if you had, um, say, say 1% of people were going to die, you treat all 100 of them. The 1% still die. It could be that the 1% who die after treatment are different from the 1% that would have died without treatment. And so then you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute. So which one am I? Would I be or would my patient be one of the ones who would be killed from the treatment? Or one of the ones who would be spared because of the treatment, because he would have died without it. And so you get all this kind of um, illogical, back-and-forth, shell-game-type chatter, when the bottom line is, just prescribe the drug, use the drug, use the protocol, follow the protocol. And so you're trying to reason this out and say, okay, okay, how can I be, how is this going to be helpful to patients? Let's see, if I do this, 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 oh, my God. Nobody's going to get better. And then, of course, when you get the pharmacology class, you get to all the um, complications. And so there's no such thing as a, as a free ride. No such thing as taking a drug and only having um, benefits. 
Okay. So another lie that people tell themselves is that if the doctor cannot fix it, no one can. Correct. But the other thing that people don't realize, I think, a lot of times is sometimes things don't need to be fixed. Sometimes you're going to fix themselves, number one, or number two, not fixing it is okay. In other words, you can still live a pretty good life without fixing it. Okay, so for those of you who are having difficulty hearing, we have an independent recording uh, going, and hopefully the quality of the independent recording is very good. So we'll be posting that. Okay, so are the interventions designed to maximize profits by maximizing complications? If you read the... um, Report the Medicare report done by Inspector General Levinson, I believe in 2010, 2012. That would seem to be the case. That would seem to be the case. Um, the report documents many cases where hospitals found um, patterns of treatment that created complications and refused to put in place policies to interfere with or reduce those patterns of practice. The person says, uh, "Many things Dr. Daniels recovered from the brainwashing in medical school." Yes, I had a lot of help waking up. I I, um, I went to Ivy League schools, as many of you may know. I went to Harvard undergrad. I went to University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, Wharton Business School. All very, uh, you know, very uh, highly ranked Ivy League institutions. Um, however, the brainwashing was that I was. The education was too valuable for me to waste on ordinary people, especially people who lived in the inner city, for Christ's sake. But I rejected that and instead opened my practice in the inner city. And so making that decision um, allowed me to experience firsthand the contradictions and the um, disparities in what I was taught and what was actually the case. So many doctors who go to Ivy League institutions are encouraged to take administrative positions. And in an administrative position, you don't see the volume of patients um, necessary to seriously challenge uh, your view of what's going on. Okay. All right, so I think someone is commenting on uh, the professor telling me that we absolutely cannot and will not extend anyone's life expectancy. Uh, He says that this was told to medical students in case somebody in the lecture hall had it in their mind that they wanted to help patients. Yeah, and this happened, by the way, many times in medical school where we were told, wait, stop, no, 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 no. We don't do this. We're not going to be doing this. We, we're not curing anybody. Don't tell anyone they can expect a cure. Don't even use the word. And so this is why they said the FDA can't allow natural products to use the word cure. Because obviously, if you have a vitamin D deficiency and someone gives you vitamin D, it's going to cure your vitamin D deficient symptoms. Like, duh. But there's no such drug of which there's a natural deficiency. There's no such thing as... Um, 
proton pump inhibitor deficiency, right? So taking a proton pump is not going to uh, cure anything. Okay. <laughs> okay, so they, the idea that you can't help a patient live longer, uh, they, in the chat room, are comparing this to the mafia. And says, are you in the mafia? And the answer, of course, is there's no mafia. So many uh, medical students dealt with this by trying to pick a specialty where they would be able to do the least amount of harm. And because, of course, uh, having gone this whole ivory route, I mean, incredible bills, right? I mean, Harvard wasn't cheap. Medical school wasn't cheap. Wharton certainly wasn't cheap. But I found ways to pay for it uh, without borrowing uh, much money. So Harvard, I sold books door to door, 80 hours a week uh, for two summers. Medical school, I agreed to work in an underserved area. And Wharton Dixon School, I was a consultant for a local hospital. And uh, all, those, all those things together kept the loans down to a very, very small amount. So what this meant then was when I sat in a medical school seat, I was sitting there scratching my head. And yeah, I'm going back to the ghetto here. I'm going to be taking care of my neighbors and my relatives and my friends. And, and how am I going to help them? How is this going to help them? And I just couldn't find a single thing in the four years of medical school, not a single thing that would help a single neighbor, relative, or friend, or that given the um, track record of it, that I would even offer it to a neighbor, a friend, or a relative. <laughs> okay, my doctor started my herbal journey by flippantly telling me to drink raspberry tea when I was two weeks late to deliver the baby. Okay, so I should have told you to take a teaspoon of cayenne pepper and a cup of water. Boom, baby would have been out in 24 hours. <laughs> so then she started doing research and realized that that was not the thing to do. Okay, and so yes, doctors will often say surgery is not necessary, but better safe than sorry. Exactly. And again, the implication, of course, is the surgery is not risky, which of course is another lie, another deception. And so what people have to believe then is that the surgery is without risk, without inconvenience, but that's not the case. Okay. Okay, once I looked at some claims on my insurance, there were all these charges for things that never happened or were never used. Exactly. Um, they encourage patients to look at their um, insurance forms, the hospital forms, um, to detect this fraud, but truth of the matter is, it doesn't really matter because what happens at the end of the year is the or as the year end approaches, the insurance company says, "Oh, you know, we're running a little low on funds. We're just going to cut back what we pay the hospitals by X Y Z percent, and we're going to stop paying doctor claims." So, even if everything is on the up and up. So the doctors only submit valid claims, the hospitals only submit valid claims. 
Um, the insurance company at the end of the year has its own ways of coming out even. For example, there's an insurance company in Syracuse that every claim that came in the mail on Tuesdays, they would just throw it in trash. They didn't even process those claims. That was back when there were paper claims mailed in the mail. Of course, now all I have to do is shut the computers down or, or, or dump all the emails or whatever. But that was the strategy. And so the insurance companies have lots of strategies in place to make sure that um, nothing uh, breaks, the, breaks the bank, so to speak. Okay, I kind of thought they have pre uh, precogs reading the mammograms. I guess uh, people who are clairvoyant um, deciding who to give the dread diagnosis and who to let go. Um, usually, that's not the case, and always sometimes it is the case. So. The reading of the mammograms, especially the mammogram screenings, is extremely, extremely um, subjective. Um, and what they found is actually gets you looked into this for music. If you have a mammogram screening and you have a younger radiologist read the mammograms and a younger pathology doctor reading the um, slides of biopsies, you're going to get a higher percentage of cancer diagnoses. And so when a hospital has a screening program, obviously, and calls up the youngest radiologist it has and say, hey, can you come read those mammograms? My mammogram screening. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll be right down. And the same for um, pathology. And the doctors are often totally oblivious to the, the fix that's in. Okay. Here's a doctor. That cousin has has PCOS, a polycystic ovary disease, and hypothyroidism. She's trying to get pregnant, but her tubes keep scarring or closing. She's been through multiple fertility treatments. What can she do? In vitro fertilization, it is now cheaper to pay a lady in India to carry your baby with your egg and the sperm of your choice and have a baby than it is to do it yourself with presently available fertility treatments. Awesome. I think there's a random number generator in these cancer tests to hand out the right percentage. Absolutely right, there is. All right, that is it. We are done for tonight. It's the end of our show. And uh, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. And if anyone knows a singer or musician who would be able to assist me in putting my song to, uh, my lyrics to a song, why? Email Shaylee, Shaylee at drjenniferdaniels.com. And we'll see you on Sunday or next Tuesday.